Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hello, I'm Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me. Another two Jews murdered, two brothers from Mishpachet Yaniv. They live in Har Bracha. This one hits close to home, five minutes from my house. They were driving through the Arab village of Khawara. An Arab walks up to them and point blank shoots them dead. I know the mother a little bit because I have an inflatable business with kids jump on bouncy houses and stuff. And she would invite me to bring my inflatables during the summer for the camps. Yeah, it's a lot different when you know the people, when it's five minutes from your house, when you see the pictures of the dead boys that some Aravi put on TikTok. It's hard to get that out of your mind. I already forgot about the Jews who were murdered in Yaakov a couple weeks ago. I don't think I'll forget this one too fast. Everybody talks about the terrorists, the terrorists. They're Arabs. Who are we kidding? They're all terrorists. We're dealing with a bloodthirsty enemy, Pera Adam, a wild man who hates us and wants us out of here. Every single one of us. And the solution, it can only come from private citizens. It's not coming from the government. It's the government that stands in the way. The village Khawara, where these boys were shot, it's going up in flames. Good Jews are burning it up. They realize the government is helpless and hapless. If we have to depend on them, then you could just say goodbye because they don't have the answers. They got the tanks, they have the weapons, they have the soldiers, but they don't have the guts to do what has to be done. And so it's up to the private citizens who live here to be ready to fight because the only thing we're going to be getting from this Israeli government are shiva calls. That's about it. They can't protect us. We have to protect ourselves. And we have to do that in spite of the Jewish government. Who's going to try to stop us? Who's going to incarcerate us for defending ourselves, for defending our families? I don't really want to move on, but let's move on. This week's portion of the week is Pasha Truma. It's the Pasha where we are commanded to build the temple. We have the verse, And you shall make me a sanctuary and I shall dwell within. On this verse, the Orachayim says, It is a mitzvah for all times. That is, it's not limited to Mashiach time. It's not limited to when the nation is ready or worthy. It's a mitzvah for all times. In Helchot Beta Bechira, the laws of the temple, the Rambam writes, it is a positive commandment to construct a house for God, as it is written, and you shall make me a sanctuary. So the question we have to ask is, having said all that, why don't we build it? What's stopping us? It's not like we're under Turkish rule or British rule, and they're stopping us. In 1967, we heard the famous words of Monte Gore, Harabayat Biadeno, the Temple Mount is in our hands. So why don't we build the temple? The Temple Mount's in our hands. Well, the fact is, even most religious Jews, they stay away from the practical aspects of building the temple. They'll take the verse, Asuli Bechdash V'shachante Betucham, that I just read, that you should make me a sanctuary, and there's all kinds of these nice vorts and nice interpretations it's taken on a personal level, not on a national level. We're talking about the tabernacle within you and you should let Hashem dwell within you because you're a mini tabernacle. You're a walking mishkan. I get it. And that is a nice vort. It's a nice interpretation to put it on a private level that the sanctuary being talked about is a sanctuary within your heart. But that's appropriate for the galut when they're in the exile. If you're in the land of Israel and the Temple Mount's in your hands, you can start taking this verse literally. According to the Pshat, to the simple understanding of it. You could start taking this verse very seriously. 
but it's not taken seriously. It's not taken on a practical level. And we have classic excuses why it isn't. One of them is that the Messiah is going to build it. That's his job. And notice how we always leave the difficult mitzvahs for the Messiah. He's going to throw out the Arabs. He's going to build a temple. He's going to lead us out of the exile on eagle's wings. I mean, when it comes to a regular mitzvah like eating matzah, we don't expect the Messiah to do it for us. We're going to eat that matzah. But the minute we run into a tough mitzvah, we lay it on the Messiah. He'll do it. But when the Rambam talks about the mitzvah to build a temple, he's talking to every Jew. He's not talking about the Messiah. The other excuse used why we don't build a temple today with our own hands, because there are those who claim that the temple is going to fall out of the heavens already built. Now, first of all, since when do we decide Jewish law by agudic sources? So according to that, even the Messiah is not good enough to build it. It's going to be built on its own. It's going to drop out of the sky. You know, a lot of rabbis oppose ascending the Temple Mount today. They oppose to just walking around Harabayat because certain places are Tumah, because not everybody knows where they can go. So you have rabbis who put a sweeping prohibition on ascending Harabayat at all. Forget about building the Temple. But now we can figure out why, because it's dangerous to walk around Harabayat. You might get crushed by a flying Temple falling from the Shemayim. Just kidding. Anyway, there's another more serious and psychological reason that prevents us from building the temple today. There's something that makes the whole idea impractical. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the mosques on Harabayat, the mosques on the Temple Mount. That's the reason why it's not really practical today. You have a huge mosque on the place where the temple's supposed to be. You have two Muslim structures there on the Temple Mount. So of course that makes it seem impractical because where are you going to build the temple even if you wanted to? On the second floor of the mosque? That's the real obstacle today. And even though we have very good institutions like Machon Mikdash, the Temple Institute, who create the kalim, the vessels for the temple, and the garments of the priests to make it real for people. So people will know what the temple is all about. After 2,000 years not having a temple, there are places like the Temple Institute that prepare us mentally for building the temple. They got the kalim ready, they got the vessels, and they teach us about it to make the whole thing seem real. So it won't be some vague pipe dream that once upon a time there was a temple. No, the temple is something concrete and real for today. That's what places like the Temple Institute try to educate us for, to realize that building the temple isn't some far out thing, some kind of fairy tale, but it's something very real, something realistic. But you know what? It'll never seem realistic if you got those mosques up there. When Benjamin Kahana used to talk about this, he would bring the verse, Sumira Setov. It says in Tehilim, first, depart from evil, then do good. Somira asetov. It's like, if you want to plant a garden, first you have to pull out the weeds. That's somira. And then you plant asetov. So there is no building the temple without removal of the mosques on a practical level. It's the reality of those mosques that they stand on the place where the temple is supposed to stand. That's what makes building the temple an impractical pipe dream in people's minds. And that's what causes the whole area to be politicized because we always have to take into consideration the sensitivities of the area. Harabayat, it's a very sensitive area. It's explosive. Now, it's not just that the mosques are up there preventing us from building the temple, but their very presence is a horrible desecration of God's name. Because like I said, they stand on precisely the place where the Holy of Holies once stood. And so you add to that that Jews are forbidden to pray or exhibit any signs of sovereignty on the Temple Mount while the Arab jackals desecrate the site 
and they blast their loudspeakers five times a day and they play soccer there and they build monuments to Shabbat Shatila and Arabs like Faisal Husseini are buried up there. That's a horrible Chilul Hashem. And when we read Echa Lamentations on Tisha B'Av, what do we do? We lament over this desecration. Shualim Hilchubo. The foxes are walking around up there. That's what pains us. Shualim Hilchubo. So not removing the masks and just talking about building the temple, that reminds us of what I mentioned last week. Talking about settling the land without expelling the Arabs. You can't settle the land properly if you have inhabitants there who think you're thieves. So by the same token, you can't build a temple if you have the Yishmael presence there. Now, when it comes to settling the land, you can get away with it for a while. That is, you can make settlements amongst the Arabs in Yehudah Shamron. You can somehow establish settlements in the midst of all these Arabs. But as far as the temple is concerned, you can't even start picking up the bricks to build it as long as those mosques are there. It's also like saying, you know what we need? We need a Sanhedrin, Jewish law. Yeah, but you can't have a Sanhedrin if you already have the Supreme Court of Israel, the Bagats. What are you going to do? Try to pass a law in the Israeli Supreme Court if you can establish a Sanhedrin? So it's Somira Setov. First, you get rid of the evil. And then you do the good. Moving on, it's the month of Adar and the holiday of Purim is in the air. And Purim always falls during the time of the Torah readings where we are dealing with the building of the temple, the tabernacle. And you'd think, well, what's the connection? Why should Purim fall during the times of the Torah readings about the temple? The Purim story takes place in the exile in Persia, far from the temple. The temple's in Jerusalem. wasn't even built when the Purim story took place. But the fact is, there is a strong connection between Purim and the Beit HaMikdash and the temple. What happens in the opening scene of Megillah Tester? Achashverosh has a huge banquet, and the sages in Masechet Megillah, page 12, they said that Achashverosh, he served the food and the wine of that feast in the vessels of the holy temple, which he inherited from the Babylonians who had ransacked the temple decades earlier. So Achashverosh, who presided over this banquet, He's using the holy vessels, and he was also wearing the garments of the high priest. So already in the first scene of the story of Purim, we're connecting it right to the temple. Now, why did Achashverosh bring out the vessels at this banquet? Well, he made a calculation. You know, he's not as nice as he seems to be in Megillah Esther. What was the calculation? The prophet Jeremiah had predicted that the Jews would be exiled for 70 years only, and then they would return to Israel and restore the Jewish state and build a temple. So according to the Cheshbon, to the reckoning that Achashverosh made, his third year of reign was exactly 70 years after the exile. That is, 70 years have passed and nothing happened. The Jews are still in exile. They're still subjects to Achashverosh. They haven't returned to their land like the prophet Jeremiah said they would. So Achashverosh partied. The Jews were still in exile and they would remain his subjects. So he partied with his papa's feast. Well, that's one of the reasons he made the feast. Now, I wanted to get into it a little bit. Where did he go wrong? After all, the prophet Jeremiah did say that the exile would last 70 years. Well, it all depends on where you want to start your count from. From where do you begin the countdown of 70 years? Ahasuerus began the countdown from Galut Yoyachin, from the exile of Yoyachin. You see, the exile, it doesn't happen all at once. It comes in stages. Just like the redemption comes in stages, so does the exile. It's not banging, it's over. The stage is to it. Now, Yoyachin, he was the next to last king of Judea. And during his time, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, 
exiled him and all the important Jews were exiled from Israel to Babylon. There was hardly anybody left of any importance. That was already the start of the exile. And that's the cheshbon that Achashverosh made. He started the countdown from that. The actual countdown should have been from the destruction of the temple during the days of Tzitkiyahu, the next king. But Achashverosh started the countdown from Galut Yochin. And before him, there was Belshazzar. In the book of Daniel, he started the countdown too early as well. He also had his own cheshbon and started the countdown too early. And he had a big feast. And he also had a party. And he was punished. And that's why you're not supposed to get caught up in some theory of when the final redemption is going to arrive. People like to figure out, what's the kits? When is the Messiah going to come? Is the Messiah going to come in this year, according to this calculation, or in another year? But we learn from this, you're not supposed to play those games. There are theories based on the words of our prophets, especially in Daniel and the Talmud and the Midrash and the Zohar. But you're not supposed to start calculating the end of days based on this, or you'll end up like Achashverosh and Belshazzar. The Talmud actually rebukes those who make calculations. They say, blasted be the bones of those who calculate the kets, the end of days. That's pretty harsh. Now, why is it so wrong? Because Hashem gave us free choice. We're not robots. We make the kets. We make it happen. And what do I mean by that? When you get a decree or a prophecy, like in 70 years, we'll return to the land. Or 400 years, the Jews will be strangers in another land. From where do you start the countdown? Depends on us. If we merit it, the countdown will start at an earlier point. We can hasten the redemption. And that's what the prophet Isaiah says, almost in contradictory terms. He says, Ani Hashem hishana. I am Hashem. In its time, I will hasten it. So what does that mean? Hishana. In its time, I will hasten it. I mean, it sounds contradictory. In its time means there's a set time. I will hasten it implies that it will be before that time. So the Talmud answers, if you merit it, it will be achishena. It'll be quick. It'll be hastened. If you don't merit it, bi'ita, it will come in its time. That is, it'll come because it has to come. So again, it depends on us. That's where the free choice kicks in. The redemption will surely come. It's a decree. But how it comes, the quality and the quantity of it, that depends on us. And there are lots of times in the Bible where we see this concept. And by the way, if you want to hear my Bible classes, you can listen to Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. It's a podcast on Spotify, on Anchor, and we get into it there. But the point is, just do what you have to do and leave the calculations for the Kabbalists. Moving on to news in Israel, as those judicial reforms are getting pushed through and the left is having their temper tantrum, this is the headline in yesterday's Times of Israel. Elite IDF reservists threatened to stop showing up for duty over judicial overhaul. Over 100 service people in military intelligence and special operations divisions, including several senior officers, say government plans, that is the reforms, risks erasure of Israeli democracy. So they keep talking about that they want democracy, but what they really want is an oligarchy. And that's what you see from this headline. They want a rule of the elite class in Israel. This headline is talking about the military elites. They don't want the simple folk in Machin Yehuda to decide things. They want a rule of the pilots in the IDF. They want a rule of the big CEOs in the big high-tech firms. They don't want some schmo from the shuk from the market to decide things. 
They want to rule of the judges, the military elite, the enlightened, and they actually threaten bloodshed. They need to hold on to the power of the judiciary because if you go by the popular vote, they're a small minority. Look what happened to Merits in the last elections. Merits, the radical left-wing party that always had six, seven, eight seats in its prime, they didn't make the Knesset this year. Nobody voted for them because the people in Israel are fairly normal still, thank God. And by the way, these military and social elites and media types, their worldview is the same as the radical party Merits which the people rejected in our last elections. But who are the people? The people who sit in front of their TV sets with their belly full of beer. They can't decide things. It's got to be the elites, the aristocrats. We all do the army. We might not be in the elite. We're not career soldiers, but we do the army. We serve and we don't have to feel second rate to anybody. Even if they're the pilots who bombed the nuclear reactor in Iraq. So they call this a threat of democracy? See, to them, what democracy really means, it doesn't mean what we're thinking, ruled by a majority vote. When they say democracy, they don't mean the rule of the majority. To them, it's not a technical thing. It's a concept. It's an idea. It's an ideal. To them, it means equality, live and let live, freedom to do whatever you want to do, no Jewish character in the state, because that would be a religious coercion, of course. Adding some Judaism and Jewish character to the state of Israel. That's a danger to democracy. That's what democracy means to them. And they're having a temper tantrum. And you got to love it. But they are dangerous. Just like the left in America, they're the violent ones. They're the ones who try to intimidate judges, who physically confront conservatives, Republicans they don't like. Same thing here. The left is doing the same thing here in Israel to the Knesset members they don't like. These are people who are ready to unleash violence if they don't get their way. And they'll do it all in the name of democracy. And thank God the people in Israel, they still have a pintalayid a Jewish spark inside. They still have some healthy instincts. So let's hope that nobody backs down here because this is Hanukkah all over again. The Hellenists want Hellenism to rule this country. I want to talk about something that made the headlines this past week. It was a big story, unfortunately. When a prominent Orthodox Israeli journalist, his name is Yair Shriki, he's pretty well known, a young guy, he's 30 years old. This is a guy who had long payas and his father's a big rabbi. Well, he came out of the closet and he wrote in a Facebook post that went viral, wrote like this, I tremble as I write these words, but now I am 30 years old and I write not because I have the strength to write, but because I have no strength to be silent. And he continues to write, I love men and God, and this is not contradictory. And then he writes that he cannot live in the shadows any longer. And of course, Shriki was praised across the board for his honesty and his courage, blah, blah, blah. Now, like I said, he's the son of a known rabbi in his community and he grew up in the national religious community. And his father, who, like I say, is a big rabbi in the community in the national religious camp, he said like this, he said, I hope he does tshuva. I can only hope that he repents, marries a woman and brings children into the world. Now, obviously this journalist, Yeshriki, like I said, he's pretty well known. He was conflicted for years, obviously, because as a religious man, he knows the Torah forbids homosexuality. And I guess to feel better about it, he went public. But one of the things he wrote just didn't sit right with me. He says he loves men. Wouldn't it be more accurate to say he's attracted to men? If you asked a heterosexual, God-fearing person about this subject, he would say he's attracted to women. He wouldn't say he loves women unless he's talking about his wife. A religious man wouldn't say I love women. He would say he's attracted to them. 
he overcomes his yetzer and he doesn't turn each one he's attracted to into a lover. It just sounds wrong. Now, what is one supposed to do if he's in such a situation? A person who knows the Torah forbids it, yet he's attracted to men. What should you do? Well, let's say someone's attracted to his neighbor's wife. Does he act upon it? There are people attracted to little children. So you're going to act upon that? No, hope not. Well, the same thing here. You're attracted to men. You have to overcome it. You have to overcome that inclination because it's wrong. You're supposed to exhibit self-control, just like you're expected to do if you covet your neighbor's wife. Now, to me, the worst thing about all this is that he went public. I mean, why go public? Maybe he felt better about it. It was a relief for him. But your feelings on everything, by going public, he legitimizes it. Because a lot of religious Jews who have this problem, and they know it's wrong, and they try to overcome it through therapy, well, he just made it harder for that person to get himself straight. Because now, somehow, it's not so bad. Because if a male is attracted to another male, that's a tendency. In most cases, it can be suppressed. But if society keeps pushing the narrative that it's okay, it's legitimate, then there's less motivation to suppress the tendency to overcome it and to marry a woman and have a family and lead a normal life. Okay, now turning to American politics, or should I say turning to old American politicians, Jimmy Carter, the peanut farmer, who became president of the United States, he was placed on hospice care. He's 98 years old, the oldest living president. And because of that, you see a lot of articles about him now, summing up his career. And this is what they say. He was not a very good president, maybe one of the worst, no question about that. He left the White House in one of the biggest landslides ever. He was one of the most unpopular presidents ever. Nobody's doubting that. After all, we're talking about a guy who helped Ayatollah Khomeini overthrow the Shah, which triggered the whole resurgence of Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. So for that and other reasons, nobody doubts that he was a horrible president. But somehow, ever since that humiliating defeat to Ronald Reagan in 1980, his legacy has grown. He received the Nobel Peace Prize for his charitable work. Since his disastrous tenure as president, Carter has rehabilitated his political and his public image by running around and being a peacemaker. That's been his thing. But I'll tell you what else has really been his thing. Carter's animosity towards Israel became so much more blatant after he was turned out of the White House. His anti-Israel op-ed articles, speeches. He's got a book called Palestine, Peace and Not Apartheid. That's the name of the book he wrote. And his whole Carter Center that he gets accolades for, that was all funded by the Arabs. And so, yeah, as a failed president, he did remake himself as Carter the Humanitarian. But the fact is, once a Jew hater, always a Jew hater. And despite his smiling demeanor, when he was president, he made himself to be like a mediator in the peace talks. Now we know what was really behind that smile and his so-called good intentions. Because if you read what Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin said back then about Carter and what Begin said about Carter when Carter was pressuring them to withdraw from the land of Israel, they said then... Well, you know, President Carter, he means well. He's just trying to make peace in the Middle East. He's naive. After all, he reads the Bible. He's a Baptist. He can't be too much against us. He's just a pie-in-the-sky optimist. That was their perception. But no, after his presidency, then it was really easy to see him for what he was, a hater of Israel. It's just that when he left the presidency, he could say and do what he really wants to do. As a matter of fact, in 2008, he went on a Mideast tour. And what did he do there? He expressed his sympathy for the Palestinians with the Syrian president, Assad. And he also met with the exiled Hamas leader, Khaled Mashael. 
So for everybody who describes Carter as a failed president who redefined himself, well, for us, he didn't redefine himself. He just showed his true colors. You know, I remember in those days, Carter had a brother named Billy Carter. And Billy Carter was just a beer-guzzling redneck who would make trips to Gaddafi and Libya with the rationalization that there's a hell of a lot more Arabs than there are Jews. And Jimmy Carter back then tried to disassociate himself from his embarrassing brother. The White House considered him an embarrassment and all. But the fact is, Jimmy and Billy, they're cut from the same Jew-hating cloth. And so with Purim approaching, we remember how we have to be careful of both types of Jew-haters. The smiling ones, like Achashverosh, and the ones who say what they mean, like Haman. Let it be God's will that we recognize it, overcome it, and take vengeance against our enemies, like the Jews in Persia did. That's it for me. Don't forget to tune into my Bible podcast, Lenny Goldberg's Bible Classes. You can find it on Spotify and Anchor for an authentic Bible experience, straight and to the point. Tune into that and tune into me next week. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.